a Superman action figure in a toy coffin, a blue shirt and red jacket, a first flight in the sun above the Arctic tundra. These are some of the moments that define my Superman fandom. Together on this podcast, we journey across time and media to examine, discover, and reconsider the creative visions that have shaped the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Superman in the Golden Age is returning guest, Mike San Gregorio. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm happy to have you back. Just a really quick postscript to our last episode. You and I had a discussion about Tom Welling's return appearance as the Clark Kent of Smallville in television's uh, crisis adaptation. And it was a great discussion, and I feel like we both made our positions clear. We felt differently about uh, the way his fate unfolded during crisis. But after I was done, after we finished the episode, I was kicking myself because I said, how did I miss the perfect opportunity to drop this legendary Smallville quote as spoken by Lex Luthor in the series finale? You and I, Mike, we saw that we saw that crisis Epstein very differently. You and I, we have a destiny together, only on different sides. <laughs> I had to get that out of my system there, so I wanted to I wanted to take care of that right off the bat there. I understand and I appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> so we are here to talk about Superman in the Golden Age. You and I have read a selection of stories from the late 30s and 40s. We've watched some episodes of the Fleischer cartoon. We reread the beginning part of Grant Morrison's New 52 uh, action comics run, uh, where he molded his Superman uh, very much after the Golden Age incarnation of the character. So we're going to be talking all about that. And I have a lot that, that I want to share, but I want to I toss it to you first, because you've been on the show now a number of times. Like I said, you came on, we talked about Smallville, we've talked about Superman and Lois, we've talked about the Jeff Loeb era of the comics. But there's one question I haven't actually asked you yet, and I was saving it for this episode because it's a, it's a big question. I think this is the appropriate place to ask it. What is your Superman fan journey? And in particular, what role does the Golden Age incarnation of the character play in your journey as a Superman fan? Sure. So I started reading comics in 1991. And uh, for anyone who is even remotely familiar with Superman, you're going to know that the early 90s were not very good to Superman. <laughs> he got murdered, and then he had long hair for some reason. Actually, not some reason. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Dan Jurgens. Um, but it was rough. And, and I am a Marvel fan. Just I like Spider-Man. I like the X-Men. And I never really connected with Superman. Um, I only read the books sporadically, but it was when I read the novel uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon that I had a better appreciation for the golden age of, of comic books, which that is a fictional account of. So I went back and I did some research on Golden Age Superman, which was a character I didn't know really anything about. Um, and I found a much more interesting prototype of the version of Superman that you and I would meet later on, especially in the, in the 90s when we started reading comics. And that one connected with me. And I've always, since then, for the past 15 years or so, uh, I, I really am into that version of the character because he is uh, relevant. He, he's very much a social crusader. He's very much for something and about something. 
but also he uh, is much less powerful than the current version of Superman, who I believe you can tell good stories about, but I find that one to be a little bit more relatable. He gets tossed around, he gets thrown around, he gets angry. Um, but the end result is that that character only existed for, for a few years. I, I mean, really, Superman premiered in 1938, and it's arguable that by the end of World War II, he's a very different character. And that's not a bad thing. But I, I personally found that that was very interesting. And going back to that original character, you see, I saw at least, how easily he inspired an entire genre, right? Like Superman created the superhero genre, as we understand it today. And you can see that there, because he gives you adventure and scale and pathos in a way that nothing else at that time was giving. So it, it was kind of this epiphany for me. And then in 2011, of course, Graham Morrison created the uh, New 52 version, which brought that back. And since Graham Morrison is one of my favorite creators, I felt very validated in a lot of that. So I have a joke with uh, uh, a friend of ours that um, my favorite version of Superman is basically anything Max Fleischer did. <laughs> And then outside of that, I don't, uh, I don't particularly love the, uh, love the character. <laughs> well, you know, the, the fact that, you know, your Superman fandom has its limitations, I think has made for interesting discussions when you've come on the show. And I always, I always value and appreciate getting your insight here in terms of your love of the golden age character, man, I'm right there with you. I gotta, I gotta <laughs> tell you something. I could... I could easily do episode after episode of this podcast talking about, you know, uh, the, the, the Loeb era and the Snyder movies and Smallville, and I'd be perfectly content and it'd be a lot of fun. And, it, you know, I, I could easily fill episode after episode with that. But I wanted, as the host, as the podcaster, as the Superman fan, I wanted to push myself and I wanted to explore new aspects of the character that I, that I really hadn't before or that I maybe didn't fully appreciate the first time, but now I might upon, upon a reread or a rewatch. And this episode to me, so like, so I was, so, I've been so excited all week and I, I know I say I'm excited about every episode. I am. It's true. I wouldn't do it if I weren't excited, but this one in particular, I was so excited and um, this this episode just so perfectly, I think, for me as the podcaster encapsulates why I'm doing this show. Because, you know, prior to this, I had read Action One, as I think most Superman fans do at some point. And that was about it as far as Golden Age goes. And even Bronze and uh, Silver and Bronze, I had, I, even to this point, I've read pretty, you know, very little of. Um, the recent shift was a few episodes ago. Our mutual friend, Rich Roney, uh, he came on the show and we broke down all the pre-crisis origin tellings. Uh, so I read now a, a decent bunch of um, gold and silver and bronze age stories. But again, within the context of the tellings of the origin, not so much the, the standard adventure. So, you know, going into this episode, you know, I, I guess I, there wasn't, I didn't have so much in the way of preconceived notions other than, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't really expecting to enjoy the stories as much as I did. I really felt that I would come at this from an historical and academic perspective. And I would look at it again, more in that academic sense and, and just sort of looking at the evolution of the character and the way the stories were told. And I was just so pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed those earliest, earliest stories, and not to knock the rest of the Golden Age, but there's definitely a shift as America enters World War II and comes out of World War II. It's a very noticeable 
change in the types of stories and the way the stories are told. But those earliest issues, you hit the nail on the head. You said something that I was thinking as I was reading these stories over the past few nights. They were about something. Like there was a very specific point of view and the stories had teeth. I mean, like they, they really packed a punch. Uh, so this was just an absolute joy and revelation to read really for the first time most of these stories. And, you know, even with Action One, I know most Superman fans and comics fans generally, right? The, the image of Action One, that cover seared into all of our brains, right? And beyond that, a lot of us probably think of that one-page uh, origin at the very beginning of Action One. But I don't know how many people, you know, necessarily think about what immediately follows that. And it's so, per you know, the rest of that first issue so, so perfectly sets the stage for what those stories are going to be like. So, uh, again, this was just an absolute joy. And I I'm glad to have you along for this ride. Yeah, I, I was very excited when you said that this was something you want to talk about, because usually this is one of those subjects that I'll go on and on about. People who read comics are like, wait, what are you What are you talking about? These are from the 30s, right? And, you know, I, I get polite stares, but to, to actually have someone go back and read these things, and uh, when I realized you were enjoying them, I was very excited, because for a while I thought you were going to be like, okay, he's just weird, but no, it's, it's good to know that this really landed for you. You know, I, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but... I enjoy these so much that, you know, this version of the character doesn't take my top spot. I mean, I, I still, in comics, certainly, I mean, I still gravitate towards, you know, obviously I started with Death of Superman, so I, I do have a fondness for that that general era. And then specifically the early 2000s, the Loeb, uh, Kelly, uh, Birthright period, that's, that's still number one for me. But this is probably number two. I, I, I mean, I just was so taken by these stories and uh it's, and you know we'll get into all of that and just to sort of uh, set the stage for our audience here in terms of what we're going to be talking about you know if you go on wikipedia as i did to look at the breakdown the exact breakdown of the golden silver and bronze ages uh they it typically right golden age is considered 38 to about 56 that's at least what's what's on wikipedia how that being said i did some further reading and research and uh the late, late 40s into the early to mid 50s uh, is, is often considered a bit of a period of flux, sort of like an in-between that doesn't quite fit, for Superman at least in particular, that doesn't really quite fit so totally into the Golden or the Silver Age. And that's something that I think Rich and I will pick up a bit next episode. He's going to come on again and we're going to talk about Silver Age, which is his favorite uh, era of the character. Uh, so for this, I mean, most of the stories that I read at least were from the 38 to 48 period. Uh, like the, truly the heart of the golden age for Superman. Uh, and then, like I said before, uh, we, we will talk about the Fleischer cartoons uh, and, and the, and the recent Morrison run. The thing with the Fleischer cartoons, and I know, well, you know, we'll get more specific with, with all of this, but this reinforced something that I was thinking about when we did our, our origins episode, which is until, until recently, until doing this podcast, I didn't fully appreciate just how important uh, those adaptations were early on in shaping the character, right? And I and as much as I knew, yeah, there was a radio show and there were the Fleischer cartoons. It again, it wasn't until like I really thought about this and actually started reading and watching everything to to fully appreciate the fact that, to, like within a couple of years of the character's birth, he has just permeated all forms of media. You know, in that Origins episode, Rich and I talked about a, a 1942 novel 
called Adventures of Superman by George Lothar. Very, you know, the whole telling of the origin. Uh, hence why we talked about it in that episode. But so there too, so it's novels and newspaper strips and the radio show and the Fleischer cartoon. And then in the 50s, we get the George Reeves TV series. So within a relatively short amount of time, you have this character all over the place. And you you really, I certainly really came to appreciate how uh, those other incarnations of the character, you know, how formative they were for the, the public at large. And it's the sort of thing that I guess in the past, I didn't, I guess I just didn't fully appreciate like how much he was out there so early. Yeah, and it's not even that he was just in all these things. I mean, in addition to his two books, you know, he had action, and then shortly thereafter, he had Superman comics. Uh, but he also had a comic strip, and he had all these other things you were talking about, and they worked together. Like the, sh- the radio show, the Fleischer cartoons, the comic, the comic strip, anything else that was going on, they... Uh, our version of the character, when we look back in there, is a is a tapestry made of all of those different things. Because Jimmy Olsen, Kryptonite, the villains, the names, they're all intermingled. Like, it didn't really settle down until you get to the end of the Golden Age. But the version of the character that exists in Action Comics number one and the version that exists at the end is, is again, it's this overlap of all these different stories because they all hit people at different times. I'm sure there were fans of the character uh, who went off to war or who came back from war who only knew him from the radio. And that's a valid interpretation in the same way of people who probably just read it in the uh, the, the newspaper as a strip because they were too old to read a comic. So the, the, the fact that the character was able to quickly expand all these these mediums, media or whatever the word is, and then re-coalesce as DC National realized, you know, oh, this is going to be a thing we have for the, for the rest of time, um, is really important because it means that it wasn't just the comic, and it also shows why so many other characters from that period of time, again, are not still being published 80 years later. I mean, how many characters existed during the Golden Age who were very good? I mean, I'm not. it's not a quality thing. It's just when you hit a wider audience, you get more recognition and you can stick around for a while. Um, the 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 thing I always point to is uh, is is Captain Marvel, right? Like Captain Marvel, the the modern day Shazam was more popular than Superman for a lot of this time, but you know he couldn't he couldn't last that long, and so he kind of gets stuck back then, where Superman gets to evolve, and it's always been like Superman's adaptability has always been one of his biggest things, and it, it starts here right at the outset. It's built into the character's DNA. A hundred percent. And, you know, like you said, it's not just that the character was was available in all of these different forms. It's how formative they were on the development and the evolution of the character. You know, the radio show gave us Perry White and Jimmy Olsen and Kryptonite. Uh, and the Fleischer cartoon, you know, gave us flight or at least cemented flight. We could talk about that more because I think technically he flew in the radio show. As far as I know, it was in the radio show. Yeah. But again, I, I, I have never listened to the radio show, so I don't know a lot about that. Again, Rich and I talked about that. And I, you know, I, I, at some point down the line on this podcast, I will do more of a deep dive into the radio show. But uh, we did listen to the first few episodes, the, the first telling of the origin on the radio show. They would go on to do more and the subsequent tellings would retcon the, the first one. <laughs> but the first one, and I, this has come up now a couple of times on this podcast, but I, I, I don't mind revisiting it because it's just so bonkers. In the, in the first uh, radio, uh, the first radio episodes, he arrives, Superman arrives on Earth in the rocket fully grown as an adult clad in the costume. And he just comes out and he saves this like father and son. And they're like, hey, this is great. You should go work at a, del- you should go work at a newspaper and call yourself Clark Kent. And he's like, okay. 
it's it's so funny. But yeah, and I, I believe it is in that uh, in in those first episodes where it mentions him hovering, uh, you know, hovering in the sky. But you know, that's the radio, right? And of course, that was you know, uh, you know, the way you know so much was consumed at the time. Nevertheless, I think once you see the character in those Fleischer cartoons on the screen, you see the character flying even if it wasn't technically the first instance, I think that really cements it in the minds of, of the public at large. Like, oh, this is something he does. Uh, I'll do just a quick little uh, explanation slash show and tell for people who might be watching this on YouTube. Um, I was a member of the, uh, the Funko Legion of Collectors uh, subscription box. And in one of them, you know, this was a couple of years ago now, they included... Uh, this little figure uh, from uh, Superman's first appearance. So he's clad in the costume, the version of the costume that he wears in action number one. And uh, and the cardboard backing is the uh, a piece of, of action one. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that when I got it at the time, I wasn't, I don't know that I was all that excited about it, to be perfectly honest, at the time. Now, I'm so glad that I held on to this and I really do treasure it. And then, um, like I said, we'll be talking about a selection of stories. Now, you know, how do we pick stories and where do they come from? Uh, I have a Superman in the 40s, right? So DC did these uh, Superman by the decade uh, trade paperbacks. They did the 40s through the 80s. I believe almost all of them now are out of print. But thanks to the owner of our old comic shop, Steve Odo, who you can find on eBay at uh, Super Odo, that's O-T-O, uh, he dug these out of the, uh, the warehouse and uh, he brought me the 40s and the 50s. So thank you, Steve. And what's cool about, uh, and again, I primarily focused on, on the 40s here, but what's cool about it is that you have uh, introductory material and some connective tissue throughout the trade that gives you some of the historical context for what was happening. And it, it is, I think, a pretty nicely curated collection where uh, this one in particular is broken down with, with milestones and opponents and, uh, and also reflecting the sort of the changing trends, uh, you know, heading into the war and out of the war. So uh, I use that as, as one basis for, for what I was going to read. And then uh, on CBR.com, uh, I found a relatively recent article counting down the top 10 uh, Superman Golden Age stories. And I actually found that to be very helpful. And I sort of use that to, uh, to round out my reading there. So if anyone's wondering, you know, why we might have picked stories we did, and I, I you know, I mean, this is the extent of what I've read, so I don't know that I can, <laughs> this is something you can answer better, but I think that the stories that we picked are representative of, of the time and of the, and of the specific phases of the golden age, would you say? Uh, yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. The, the Superman in the forties was definitely, uh, my favorite of what we read because really you can get, uh, through the entire thing, hit the high points and there's, there's none of that. When you get to the end, you, you kind of get to the end. I, I didn't feel like we did, we had to stop at a certain point. I, I think that's a really good collection. And yeah, I, I hope that goes back in print because I, I think that's a version of the character that would be very popular right now. Um, yeah, I, I, the only the only story that I would add in that I can think of um, in that list that you mentioned from CBR was the uh, was the first appearance of, of the imp of Mr. Mixias Pitleg or whatever. I don't know if that is technically a golden age story, but I love that one because it's so ridiculous, but it was by Jerry Siegel. It was like absolutely canon old Testament type thing. And I just love that story. 
because I love the idea that the guy who created, you know, Superman, this like He-Man action hero type also just created these like trickster joke characters to mess with him. Like looking back on it, there was nothing that Jerry Siegel liked to do more with Superman than just mess with him. <laughs> like all the action and heroics, that stuff came later to, to the practical jokes. So that's the only one that I, I would tack on. It, it holds up. It's very funny. And it was adapted closer than you'd think uh, for Superman, the animated series in the, the late nineties. Gotcha. Okay. That way that was on the list, right? It was, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, it was on the list. Uh, so if, if yeah. someone's going to Google it, it's it's definitely on there. Um, but I, I I don't believe it was in the '40s collection. I didn't see it there. Oh yeah, no, it wasn't in the '40s collection. And frustratingly, it, it's missing from the DC app. Uh, so that was one I wasn't able to read. But the '40s trade does have maybe Mixie's second appearance or something like that. Like it's it's it's, it's pretty early on, but it's not the first one. The, you know, the, the things that are not on that, the, the app is called DC Infinite, and the things that are not on that app surprised me. I, I, the other day, I was looking for Batman the Killing Joke, you know, arguably one of the most popular and well-regarded Batman stories. It's not on there. It's a single issue, and I had to go and dig through my, my long boxes, but I thought it was funny because it's like, you'd think that, if nothing else, that would be on there, so... I don't know. That was a weird aside, but uh, don't get me started on that app. It drives me <laughs> nuts. I, I mean, it's it's baffling to me. You know, I, I will say this. I, I think it's the first hundred issues of action are on there. Not the entire issues, but the Superman lead stories, which was great. And that was helpful for this. Uh, but the Superman title is a lot spottier. And in both instances, uh, while the Golden Age selection is pretty solid, uh, there, I mean, then it's like a huge jump to really just like the a lot some of the key Silver Age issues. Bronze is very spotty as well. The modern era is is much better represented, but uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating. I, I you know I, I could go on about that, but uh, yeah, it doesn't quite live up to its name. Yeah, the app. Um, but in any event, you know, big picture. When we talk about this this era, and in particular, the first version of Superman, the version that we get that, that Siegel and Schuster give us and that we spend the first few years with, uh, really is that social crusader. And as much as I had read about that so many read about that so many times over the years, it was great to really see that in action, pun intended. Uh, but you know, he's this social crusader. He's he's standing up for the oppressed. He is, as you said before, nowhere near the power level that that we'll see him at in the future. I mean, he's really, uh, I don't want to say struggling necessarily, but I mean, you see him performing these tasks and, and uh, it's, he's not juggling planets. He's not, you know, again, he's not what we would see down the line. So he's, and he's tough. That was one of the things that I sent to you, I think in one of my emails, I was like, this Superman's a badass. I mean, you know, he's like, he's knocking heads and, and uh, he runs afoul of the law, you know? Um, and yeah. in the Fleischer cartoon too, you know, most of the episodes end with uh, with a newspaper, the front page of the newspaper with the headline of what Superman has accomplished. And in almost every instance, it's like, you know, uh, Superman vanishes. Superman's still a mystery. Like there was yeah. this, there's still this air of mystery around him. It was so cool. Yeah, th there are there are two things that I think are very important to remember when you're talking about the Golden Age Superman and how different he was from what came later. And the first is that he is absolutely an outlaw. Like he is just an outlaw, like full stop. Like uh, Clark is a respected member of society. Superman is not. And mostly because everyone's afraid of him. Um, he does have a relationship with Lois, but it's more, 
you know, he, he's Batman, basically. He, he is the caped crusader. He will punch out someone in a position of power if he feels they're abusing that power. But he, he is an outlaw. And then the other thing that I always point to is Golden Age Superman is not truth, justice in the American way. He's just truth and justice. And I think that's very important to remember too, because when I say he's an outlaw, I don't mean that he's a villain. I just mean that he doesn't yet represent the establishment. He doesn't represent law enforcement. He doesn't represent the the power struggles. The excuse me, the um, the systems of power. He's not, you know, he's not standing there with a badge. And I'm not saying that any of those stories that come later on that have him do that are bad. I'm just saying he didn't start that way. He ended that way. He evolved into that position. He he eventually became powerful enough and popular enough and trusted enough that he was given power in his own right. But when he begins, he is only interested in the truth of the story and getting justice for those that don't have anyone to fight for them. And that, I feel like, is an incredibly powerful thing and helps to explain why this guy who, again, was rejected by every publisher we have a name for, uh, suddenly took over the world and, and started a whole new genre and really made sure that comics, which had only been around for a short period of time, are still being read 80 years later. Like, he, he is the reason that happened. Exactly. And, you know, the thing that I've really come to appreciate is, and I mean, this is not a startling revelation, but, you know, obviously the character evolves. And I think each generation gets the Superman it needs, even if it doesn't know it right at the time. And, you know, you look at this earliest version and, you know, born out of this depression era and, you know, dreamt up by these two, you know, these two teenagers in, in Cleveland. And it was, it was Siegel, right. Who had lost his father uh, in, a, in a robbery. Yeah. So I've read multiple versions of this story. So I, I don't know what is true. What is lore? What is family lore? But I do know that Mitchell Siegel, Jerry's father, worked in a shop of some sort, and one day he did not come home. And, and that inspired young Jerry to kind of say, well, listen, I had a great relationship with my dad, but he's gone, and I want to create a version of him who can't be gone in that way, who's going to fight and be strong and never be beaten down by anything. And supposedly that was a very uh, instrumental reason as to where the Superman character developed from. Because Siegel and Schuster themselves, uh, you know, they said this in interviews, they were Jimmy Olsen. They were who Clark was pretending to be. They were not the, the He-Man hero type. So when when Superman is wearing that costume and he's acting in that way, again, it's it's a little bit, I think, of wish fulfillment for these for these two kids, really. That that makes sense. And you know, you could see why for those two guys and for the the fans who who so quickly gravitated to the character in that time, which you know, I, I mean I, I can't imagine going through, you know, that specifically. And so, you know, to all of a sudden have a character who, you know, bullets bounce off his chest, but more than that, he's going to stand up for the people who can't stand up for themselves. Uh, you know, it's, again, it's, it, you can see why that resonated. And also, you know, what I've come to appreciate is just how, how different this character was, you know, from all the pulp heroes at the time and certainly from the other, you know, comics that were being published. So, uh, so again, I mean, I think you you know we we get the Superman we need, and and the version that we started with, I, I think for that time, uh, that's what was needed, and and I think that helps account for why you know why why people gravitated to him the way they did, you know, going back to Action One, 
as I said before, it's like, you know, we know that one page origin story, but then immediately the next page, I mean, we see Superman, he's carrying this bound woman through the night sky, drops her on the lawn of the governor's mansion, barges in, storms into the governor's bedroom, and is like, hey, you're going to execute the wrong person. I got the real killer on your lawn. And, you know, he doesn't take no for an answer. And, you know, and then in Superman, number one, a year later, uh, we'll, we'll get that... Um, that wrongful, uh, you know, about to be executed person, that whole story, we'll get that fleshed out a little bit. But that's, you know, that's our start. And then, you know, his next bout of superheroics is taking care of a wife beater. And the guy yeah. faints, the guy faints before, <laughs> before Superman's like, I'm going to give you a thrashing. And the guy just passes out. Uh, you know, I mean, again, I, like I said before, I think that just really sets the stage for, you know, for, for the, the character and for all of the elements of the mythos that have been added over the years and in the Silver Age in particular. And, you know, we'll get into that next episode. But, you know, there's like none of that in the first story and very little of that. I mean, like you said before, you know, in the Golden Age, we'll get Mixius Pitalik, we'll get Luther, we'll get Toy Man, we'll get Prankster. You know, we'll, we'll start to get a lot of that added. But so many of these stories in the beginning in particular, it's, you know, it's slumlords and corrupt orphanage superintendents and thugs and, and you know corrupt politicians i mean that's really who he was who he was taking on stanley once said that the reason the books he worked on with his artists were different than everything else is cuz he just he wrote things that he would want to read you know he did he didn't write for kids he wasn't interested in that he wrote for things to himself i i think that is even more true with Jerry Siegel, because my understanding of the man is that he was the biggest geek on the planet. He read every piece of science fiction he could get his hands on. He read every pulp adventure story. I mean, there's a lot of Doc Savage in early Superman. And he just, he, he put it all into this one character, this one thing. And you can just see that all of the influences combined to create something truly new. And yeah, he doesn't go after colorful characters for a while. He, he fights people that I'm sure Jerry would thought, you deserve this, guys. It's the height of the Great Depression out here. And there is a war brewing in the old country. Like, you guys deserve this. And that's pretty much what Superman is. He's really, he's not a kid's character when he's introduced. I, I mean, this isn't, uh, by the way, this is not, um, as a small aside, this is not unique to Superman. Anyone out there who's not read a bunch of Golden Age comics, they're all pretty brutal. Like, there was no, there were no real guidelines back then as to what you could and couldn't do. That would come later. That uh, That's one of the reasons the Golden Age gets kind of weird at the end, and you'll go more into that next week. But uh, there were no real guidelines. Like, famously, Batman used to shoot people in his first couple of appearances. That's considered tame to, to what some of the these guys got up to um so so superman definitely started with that but i, I really do think jerry was writing like well, what do, what do i want to read what do i want to see you know and and i think that's one of the reason those those first couple of years that they're pretty harsh before it takes off and he's like oh wait a second i gotta tone this tone this down a little bit he's got uh, action figures <laughs> but I, I think that's that's such a big part of the charm for me of this era that it's like yeah he's not this highly valuable corporate piece of intellectual property yet. You know, it's like raw and wild and the character was taking shape. And yeah, you didn't have those parameters like we would get with the Comics Code Authority, like you were saying, you know, uh, after the, you know, seduction of the innocent and, and the hearings and all that, that business. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's just something like really um, very exciting. I think there's, there's, there's an energy to those early stories um, as you see the character take shape. I think the other thing that's so powerful is that 
you know, as much as it, yes, it is definite, it's a decidedly different version of the character, but the core is still there. The core of someone who is going to to do the right thing and save people. Um, you know, again, as much as it'll, it'll shift, the, the core is still there. And I think that too helps account for why the character has, has endured, but I'm jumping way ahead, but I, I don't, I don't want to forget it because it was something that really stood out to me in the Morrison run. Uh, I know a number of the issues had backup stories and one of them, there was a scene with uh, young Clark and Jonathan uh, in the house and uh, one of their friends or neighbors had had their truck repossessed and Clark uh, like put it on top of the bank to mess with, to mess with them. And, and the idea was, and Jonathan and Clark were talking about this and Jonathan was like, yeah, like how could you repossess you know, this person's or truck or piece of machinery, whatever it was, uh, like right at this time, you know, when, when they need it the most. And, you know, Jonathan imparts this lesson to him, uh, you know, paraphrasing obviously, but basically like there are some people who, you know, people who are, are, you know, richer or more powerful, they'll take advantage of other people because they can, and those other people can't always stand up for themselves. So you have to stand up for them. And what was so interesting to me about that, because look, you know, I'm no stranger to a Jonathan Kent speech and I love them. I love them all. I love them all. And, but most of them, I think you, you know, they sort of fall into the category of, you know, you were sent here for a reason and you have to use your powers for good. And this, this isn't a 180 from that, but at the same time there, that's a very specific piece of advice, right? It's not just, Oh, do good. It's that, Hey, there are bullies out there and you have to stand up to them. And it's, 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 you know, again, not, it is a distinction. And it was interesting to see that. Um, obviously you don't, you don't see that necessarily in the golden age stories. You don't get a flashback to that advice, but seeing it, seeing it in that, uh, that Morrison run was really cool. Yeah. I, I could not agree more. And I think you hit the nail on the head. The, the key distinction between golden age and non-golden age is golden age. It's I protect people. That, that's it. I, I protect people who are being abused. And if they're being abused by, uh, by, by legal, by, by banks, a bank is a legal structure um, or whatever else, um, you know, I, I'm going to do the right thing because I have to help people. I have to have empathy. Um, the, the, there's one thing I, I kept thinking of rereading these issues, which was I wish Golden Age Clark had been around when Luthor was president because you and I discussed that when we did the lobe run and it was this idea of like what does Superman the ultimate example of law and order do when uh, his arch rival the most evil man in the world is legally elected president well he blow off he blows off some steam in the vacuum of space but ultimately nothing he does he does nothing uh, and I don't feel like that would be the case for Colton H Superman who'd be like nope that guy is a gangster Nazi and I'm gonna punch him in the mouth so I just uh, I kept flashing back back to that but uh, yeah no I, I love the recontextualization of John and the other background stuff in the new 52 because as much of what we know of Superman is in the golden age. Most importantly, uh, the identity of, of Clark Kent and everything we attribute to him and Lois. Lois is right there, day one, page one. Uh, the the Smallville stuff and the Jonathan and the parents and all that, none of that's there. That was all added. That was all added later. Um, 
and what the new 52 says, well, wait a second, there's a lot of that stuff we really like. Let's, let's sprinkle it back in and say, well, you know, how would that upbringing result in this different, more aggressive, uh, but ultimately more helpful version of Superman? Man, I'm, the wheels are turning now that you mentioned that President <laughs> Luther storyline. Because you're right, and I mean, I, that was a. Fr- I think that was a bit of a frustration that I had with that storyline, where it's like, yeah, he really doesn't do anything. He's like, well, I, you know, ultimately, I respect the democratic process. It's like, but you know what this guy is capable of, and you're right, a hundred percent. That golden age version would not stand for that. He'd be dragging Lex out of the White House, and yeah, without no, a second I mean, thought. Yeah, and it wouldn't even be like. It wouldn't even be a bad, it would just, he'd wait until he did something evil and then he would just drag him out. Like, again, like any other, you know, th- there's a reason superheroes wear masks because they're outlaws. Like that fundamentally is what they are. I mean, I'm a Spider-Man fan and, you know, he spends as much time fighting the the police and the newspaper and everything else as he does supervillains. So, yeah, I, I just kept going back to that and thinking like, you know, I get that our modern Superman is is a world power in and of himself, and he has to put certain rules on himself. I completely understand that, but the 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 version of Superman that took Hitler and Stalin and put them in front of the world court and said, "This war is over. I will punch you both in the mouth." I don't think he would have stood for President Lex abusing his power in the way he did during some of those stories. Yeah, look, you know, again, I I don't subscribe to the most common criticisms that you hear about the character, obviously. But for anyone who feels that he's boring or a dud, read these Golden Age stories because there's an electricity to this version of the character that uh, that you, you might just respond to. Uh, let's take a quick commercial break and then we'll come back. So much more to talk about. This is, uh, this is great. We'll be right back. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On To Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On to Your Shorts and Cullen on Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas, Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, the Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. If you enjoy this show, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. I also hope you'll consider joining my Patreon community. The support of my patrons enables me to produce this podcast, and patrons get rewards too, including exclusive episodes, advanced listens, and more. Sign up today and get instant access to the back catalog. Visit patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. Thank you to all of my patrons. I truly appreciate your support. All right, and we're back. And I have one more plug to make. I recently connected with the host of the Krypton Report podcast, Tyler, a great guy. We've exchanged messages and I just wanted to give a shout out to his podcast. So Krypton Report is a Superman based podcast hosted by Tyler, dedicated to everything from the House of L, including TV shows, comics, movies, video games and anything else DC related. Uh, You can find Krypton Report on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram and Twitter. And if you go to their link tree, Krypton Report. Uh, you can get all of the handy links in one place. Uh, what's cool about their show is that 
uh, they do they are more uh, current event focused. Uh, so they're regularly talking about the latest episodes of Superman and Lois and Supergirl. Um, and they do look back at other, you know, stories as well. Um, so for anyone who's looking for more uh, Superman podcast goodness, I hope that they will check out Krypton Report. Have you ever checked out? Have you ever listened, Mike? Uh, no, I, I've never heard of that show before. Yeah, well, there you go. Now you have. So, all right, we're back. We're talking about the Golden Age incarnation of of Superman. And... Again, you know, we cover the origin pretty thoroughly, I think, or, you know, earlier on, on the podcast. But the one thing I just, I always had this in my mind as I was reading those earliest stories, you know, in action one, right, he's found by a motorist and brought to an orphanage. And then he decides, you know, and that's, we don't get much else. He, he has these powers and he decides to be Superman. And I just always think to myself, again, going back to that idea of like this mystery around the character, like there's so much we don't know. And it's like that version of the character who grew up in an orphanage, who decides to be to become Superman. Uh, just something about that that I just I, I couldn't shake that as I was reading all of those stories. You know, it's it's funny because I I think that is due to the fact that if you had told Jerry Siegel and and, and Joe Schuster when they were making that first version, which again was rejected many times, and we'd still be discussing this 80 years later, they'd be like, what are you talking about? No, you know you're not. So it, it was a way of kind of burning off the origin story quickly. You know, we can look back on it now and say, well, no, no, we know why the character is noble and wants to help everyone. But at the time, he was probably like, well, no, I need to get to the punching because that's that's the interesting part. That's the gimmick. That's what's going to separate him from Popeye and Doc Savage and any other way you can spend your, I don't know, nickel, whatever it was. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was just I, you know, I don't think he expected this character, this franchise, to be as successful as it was. I'm sure he was happy when it took off and meant more work for the both of them, but I, I don't think they expected it. I, I mean, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster worked at National Comics on a bunch of different characters, and we are not talking about them 80 years later. Um, uh, if you, if anyone were to read a, uh, a reproduction of Action Comics number one, and I think Anthony mentioned this before, you know, it's got half a dozen other characters in there like no one knew like superman got the cover because obviously he's the most visually compelling uh, and, and joe schuster at his prime was great but there you know he was he was one of a dozen characters and they had to kind of play the field so yeah to your point i think it was just like we have to burn this off as quickly as possible and an orphanage is a nice quick way of saying well we know he's from an alien world of super people you know which is basically the the future really right. krypton is written just to be the future earth which is something we might see one or two times in other superman stories but um you know it's just like we have to get it out of the way so we can get to the punching like jerry siegel did not waste he didn't waste panels basically i, I agree i think you know behind the scenes that accounts for it. it what's what's funny and this might sound surprising for me to say because you, you know i love a superman origin story but at the same time there is something mythic and elemental about like not having that. And he just, you get the bare bones and this guy just shows up and he does what he does. There's something about that that is, that is really appealing. I mean, you know, do I prefer that to the more fleshed out version of the origin that explains why he does what he does? No, but I do like it. I, you know, and, and again, you know, there's room for different interpretations. So I, I do quite like that this version of the character exists. Similarly, again, I can't believe I'm saying this because I've gone on record so many times, right? I like the Kents alive, generally. I like them as a sounding board for Clark when he's an adult. I like, especially before he forms a relationship with Lois 
and lets her in on his life. I like that he can confide in somebody. Uh, and, you know, so that's my preferred version. I understand that, you know, the death of, of Pa Kent can, you know, signal the end of his his adolescence and, and teaches that lesson that he can't save everyone. And there's value in that. So I'm sort of I'm sort of mixed on uh, on, on Jonathan's passing. But for the most part, I never quite liked this pre-crisis version where both parents die. That being said, um, because, you know, with, with Superman 1, right, a year later, we did get a more fleshed out origin. And now he was adopted by the Kents. And upon their death, he leaves and he becomes Superman. And in the New 52 incarnation, his parents are dead. That was a big departure from the post-crisis uh, Superman. But there, too, I don't know. I found myself more okay with it than I thought I would, I guess because I feel like his parents not being there, how do I put this? Like it almost, it, like it, it does sort of account for why he would be as, I mean, for lack of a better word, like aggressive as he is. It's like, it's almost like he has nothing to lose and it's like all bets are off and he's, he's, he's going out there and he's doing what he needs to do and there's nothing holding him. But not that his parents hold him back, but they are a tether and for the most part, I like that tether. It's a tether to his humanity. But at the same time, when that tether's not there and he's just unleashed, that's the version that we get. So I think for for this this type of Superman, it, it actually does, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think it does quite work if his parents aren't there. What, what's your take on this? I, I think you're right because in the New 52 version, we see uh, Graham Morrison's Clark Kent speak to his landlady uh, and, and he says, the landlady discovers his secret identity and he says to her, you know, if you are going to blackmail me, I have no money. And more to the point, if you expose me, Clark Kent will disappear. Superman will just appear as a new identity somewhere else, somewhere else in the world. And I think to what you said, part of that is he knows Ma and Pa aren't reading the Daily Planet every day, right? They're not looking to see what their son is doing. So right there in those early days before he establishes his relationship with Lois, there's no Justice League, there's no other superheroes, um, he can he can leave. He can just pick up and say, well, the mission is the most important thing, you know, bringing down the villains, whether they be Glenn Morgan or later on Luthor or, or you know, Brainiac or whatever – Bringing them down is the most important thing. And if Clark Kent's going to get in the way of that, well, John and, and Mary or Martha or whatever, they're gone. So I don't have to worry about that. I can go off and become Johnny Clark or, uh, you know, any other any other thing that you want. I mean, he even says in the New 52, it's like, I don't really need to eat a lot or sleep or anything like that. So it's even more, I won't say inhuman, but like a little bit more divorce. Like Clark can spend more of his, his waking hours of who he is towards helping people it's almost like again I, I go back to like batman it's almost like he's driven by this mission that like i i am here for a very specific purpose and it is to level the playing field because you know earth could be like krypton if i help the mountain and get some of this stuff out of the way i will say as we're as we're looking as we're talking about the morrison run and specifically for this i read the first arc it's collected in the uh, is it the Men of Tomorrow? Yeah, I think it's Superman and the Men of Tomorrow trade. It's like the first eight, the first eight issues. And I, you'll be back on the show next year, and we'll do a whole deep dive into Morrison's run on Superman, uh, not just in the New Fifty Two title, but also uh, JLA, One Million, All Star, all that good stuff. 
But I'm glad that I really thank you for suggesting that we include it in this episode because, you know, I, I, I'm on record in other podcasts as saying, you know, I was I was really not on board with New 52. Um, I sat out most of it. I remember going to alternate realities uh, before it closed, of course, and I had my key and I let myself in the Wednesday or the Tuesday, I guess, that the books came in with uh, uh, Flashpoint number five and Justice League number one. I remember letting myself into the store um, and digging through the boxes and finding them. <laughs> and I sat there and I read and I was just like, you know what? I just don't think this is for me. And for Superman in particular, I didn't like that. Oh, I still don't like that his relationship with Lois was was wiped away. At the time, I didn't like that his parents were dead. It was just, it wasn't the version of the character I fell in love with. I grew up reading. But now with the benefit of time and with the benefit of the context of these Golden Age stories, I, I, I look at that run now. And that's why it's like, I love doing this podcast because I look at that run and I'm like, oh, like I really get, I really get what Morrison was doing here. And you know, at the time, it was like, well, this took the place of the Superman I liked. Now, 10 years later, which is crazy, but 10 years later, I can look at it and it's like, well, we ultimately got, quote unquote, my version back, right? And this is a story that's out there and I'm, I'm really glad it's out there. And, and so now I, I appreciate that in a whole other way. But what I was going to say is that I, I really enjoyed Morrison's treatment of Clark more than he gets a much better deal than, than he did in, in the Golden Age uh, stories because there it's really just a disguise. He is disguised. And you know, the, you look at the opening for the radio show and the Fleischer cartoon and the George Reeve show and it's disguised as Clark Kent. And that's really what we got in the golden age and, and, and beyond, right? It, this was just, he put on, he puts on a pair of glasses so that he can blend in and, you know, be at the newspaper where he can find out, you know, where everything is, you know, when things are happening. And that's, that's kind of it. And he, plays his Clark as, you know, meek and mild and cowardly uh, to divert suspicion. And, you know, there's really not much to Clark. And I feel like Morrison treated treated Clark a lot, a lot better. Like you said, and that jumped out at me too, you do get that line where he's like, if you out me, I'll just, I'll just become someone else and Superman will appear, you know, and it'll be fine. And it's like, yeah, you know, is that my favorite version of the character? Not necessarily, right? But... You know, it made sense, but but that Clark was still, you know, was still capable and was this dogged investigative journalist, uh, you know, who was, was cracking cases and competing with, with Lois for stories. Uh, so I, I definitely appreciated the treatment of Clark more so, you know, in the Morrison run than, than we got back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. <laughs> yeah, Clark in the Golden Age is, is rough because, I mean, going just back to Action Comics number one, the reason Superman flips that car is because Lois has been taken. Lois has only been taken because Clark goes out of his way to be very, very benign and not get in the way of what proves to be a gangster. But it's almost like, it's almost, it's kind of creepy because it's like he's really, you know, Superman has decided Clark Kent, who I am when I'm wearing these glasses, has to be very, very different from who I am when I'm wearing this cape. So it's like, you know, Superman is aggressive and he throws things and he does everything else. Clark goes out of his way to be meek and mild. And it's, it's such a great gimmick because, you know, in those issues, again, I'm not even saying you're supposed to like Superman back then, because again, you didn't always have to like these characters. The, the shadow was a dick. <laughs> um, 
and and it establishes a love triangle. It really does, right? Like Clark Kent loves Lois. Lois loves Superman. Superman would be quite happy if she loved Clark. And it's beautiful because it's one of those narrative storytelling devices that is flawless and unchanged in, in nearly 80 years. And the versions that do drop it usually aren't as successful as the ones that play it up. And I just, I can't believe it was there in the first issue. Like, it's just so much of what makes the character unique, both at the time and today, was was there, was was on the page. So, yeah, I Clark definitely evolved into a more likable character, but there is something interesting and compelling about him as he as he is on first arrival. It, it, it is interesting. And, you know, I've never subscribed to or been a fan of the Kill Bill speech. Mm, right. about how Clark is meek because that's how Superman views the human race. But I don't know. It's like, <laughs> you look at some of those stories and it's like, I don't know. Is that his indictment of humanity? I, you know, it's like, I don't like to think that it is. I, I Ultimately, I don't think that's the case. I think it made for a great speech in a movie. I don't think that... You know, that's necessarily what was at play, but it's... Well, the person who gives that speech is also a sociopath. So well, that's true. I just want to point that out. Like, for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 2, the villain, the titular Bill, gives gives this speech. So he, he may not be the best example of uh, what a, a, a good person with power and at least claiming to have noble intentions actually wants out of life. So I will say that. But wait, he's Bill. He's the title character. We're supposed to root for him, right? Have I been watching it wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Channeling Barney Stinson there for a second. Anyway, so uh, I wanted I want to jump back to you know because it's funny we I mean we've been talking generally but I do want (laughs) to as we're almost an hour in I do want to make sure we talk about some specific stories. This was number one on that CBR list, and I think this was my favorite story. Action Comics number eight, and I said this before. I mean I think this. This story in particular really captures the essence of that social crusader. Again, you see the elements of it in even in Action Comics number one, but this one, you know, I was when I read the description on CBR, I was like, oh, like I wasn't, I don't know, I just wasn't expecting that kind of story. For anyone who hasn't, I mean, it's such a good, if you read no other Golden Age stories, like go read Action. You had read this already? Was this something yeah, you yeah, had? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I guess I'll give the setup for it, right? So it starts with uh, this teenager being sentenced to two years uh, in juvenile detention uh, for assault and battery. Clark is in the courthouse. He's seeing all of this unfold. And he observes this teenager's uh, gang, his compatriots who, who are also there. And he follows them outside and, you know, finds out that, yeah, they're all part of this gang. They work for this fence. And uh, the kids go back to to the fence and, you know, they uh, they confront him because he had promised that if they ever got in trouble, he would pay for a lawyer. And he didn't now for this kid who's going away. Uh, and they want the money they've been promised. And he pushes them off and he uh, tells them he has these jobs for them to do, a big score. He sends them all to a different place, a different place to break in. And uh, what Superman overhears is that after he sends them out, this guy, this fence calls the police. He's going to set them all up just as he set up the initial kid. Uh, and he's going to make off with with all the money. And it's like, it's my, like for people who are more familiar with the later versions of the character, like this might sound so surprising, but Superman goes to all of these uh, soon-to-be crime scenes and he he intervenes, but he stops, he saves 
these these gang members who who are going to commit these crimes. And in some instances, it's a matter of just stopping them before they move forward. But in a couple of instances, they've already been apprehended or or a pursuit has started by the police. And he interview he gets between the police and these kids and he gets them out of the way. Going back to what you were saying before about Superman the outlaw. And, you know, he literally takes them under his wing. Like he grabs them all up under his arms and he's walking them across the telephone wires, like trying to, <laughs> try to scare them straight. And he does ultimately you know, get through to them and, and, and reaches them in the sense that, you know, this is not the way to, you know, to, to go about their, their lives. But again, in another very surprising and interesting turn, Superman himself realizes that they're a product of their environment. They're a product of these slums that they've grown up in this neighborhood. And I felt like that was such a progressive view for the character to have in the thirties Right. And as much as you would expect, like, oh, Superman's tough on crime, he would round them up. It's like, no, he there's 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 some sympathy there. There's some understanding. There's some insight. Um, and the <laughs> then the final turn, this only this made me laugh, but it was very interesting as well. Conveniently, he sees a newspaper headline that uh, in Florida there had recently been a cyclone, and uh, and after that, uh, the government rebuilt all the houses that were destroyed. So that gives him an idea, and he tells all these kids, he's like, "All right, go to your neighborhood, tell everyone to get out and grab their valuables." And after after they do, he's a one man wrecking crew, and he tears apart these these tenements. And I right, I, I don't think I'm mixing up stories. I think the like they send in the military, right, to try to stop him, but that only makes his job easier because they're like firing all these missiles and stuff, and he's yeah. just letting them hit the buildings. And then, as a result, this, this neighborhood has been demolished. The government has to rebuild it, and everyone moves back into this like affordable, uh, you know, these you know these very nice buildings that are affordable for them. And and that's the story. If you adapted that Action Comics number eight today and people didn't know about that issue, you you would think uh, it was a version of Superman that had never existed. But yeah, this is this is from his first year. This is this is like foundational. And all of this stuff happens in in what is I don't even think twenty pages. No. I mean you, you want to talk about dense. And yeah, everything you said is completely accurate. Like this this Superman is not a crime fighter. This is a guy who has incredible empathy. He's a he he follows the story. It's not like, oh well the law decided and then that's it. It's like, no, wait a second, that could have been me or that could have been someone I knew or that could have been someone clearly this kid doesn't know what's going on. I'm gonna see if I can fix this because I can do all these amazing things and again it's like you know this might be why i'm here maybe i do have to change things maybe i have to force change you know it's it's rhetoric that we hear not usually in the superhero circles but in like actual political and social discussion but it's here like superman is clearly meant to be a tool of social and political change he just does it because he's strong so that's the only hammer he has and to your point yeah he wrecks these slums no one is hurt but he destroys them and he forces the powers that be to, to fix everything and he's like oh cool great well you know don't let this happen again or i will be back because you can't hurt me and and he he gets to sit as this like third 
power. You know, it's like I'm not against criminals because they broke the law, and I'm not for you because you make the law. Like we're all human, and we all have to understand the difference between us. And it's just, it's all right. It's right there from the beginning. Like it's just, it, it was incredible to me the first time I read this stuff, and and it's just as compelling now. Yeah, that story. I mean, I, I echo all of that, and that story was such a standout. And I also, I'm glad you mentioned it because I did want to bring this up: the density of these stories. They're they're all like you know ten to twelve pages, and and honestly, that's sufficient. I mean, these pages they're they're packed. There are no full page splashes. There are no double page spreads. There's a ton of exposition. Uh, I mean, they, I mean they're they're really packed. But at the same time. I, again, like I went into this, like I said, not thinking that I would enjoy it. And, and also, I guess, sort of feeling like the storytelling sensibilities were so outdated that I just wouldn't, again, that I, that I wouldn't enjoy them. And that's probably true of the later ones that, that we took a look at. But these early ones, I was, I was genuinely engaged by them throughout. Even, yes. even, even with the heavy exposition and all, but even still, like I, you know, I, I still, uh, I was there, man. I was there for it. Yeah. I, there's a great quote about the movie, uh, Casablanca that I like, which is, um, it's often considered the greatest movie of all time, but it actually is very good. And, and I feel that way about these very early Superman stories. Like you think they're going to be a slog. You think that, that they're so out of date and so out of touch. And there's so many other golden age stories that are unreadable, but to actually sit down and read his first year, his first two years worth of stories, they are very good. Like they are quick and they are fast and they are, you know, it's called action comics for a re Clark does not sit around and just talk about things like he, he is running and he's jumping and he's leaping. And you know, the, 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 the visual language that Joe Schuster and the people in his studio had to develop to how to convey those stories, they did a bang up job because, you know, Metropolis may have just started as Cleveland or New York or what have you, but like, I feel like it, it takes on a life of its own and he's, he's not, you know, one of the things I like about the Golden Age Superman is he doesn't fly over the buildings. He doesn't fly around the world. He leaps between them, you know, almost like Spider-Man swinging. And it really lends itself to some to very compelling visuals. Like when he's chasing a car, he's, he's chasing. He's not flying around. He doesn't do any of his little tricks that he'll have later on. Like this is a guy who's, who's trying to, to get somewhere and get something. So yeah, I, I echo that. These are actually well-written stories. They're, they're not as uh, out of date or out of touch as, as you'd think. Again, I, I feel like Jerry wrote them for himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really a pleasant surprise. I mean, like they're tight and punchy and they move. Uh, I promise that I, I don't set out to mention the Snyder movies in every episode. <laughs> I really don't. I swear. I swear. I don't. That being said, I remember when the first production still from man of steel was released. It was the shot of Superman uh, standing in front of the vault that he had just been smashed into during the fight with the Kryptonians. And so it's him like standing right in front of the, 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 cr the crushed smashed vault bank vault. And he's kind of like crouched, like he's getting into an attack position and he looks angry because he's mid battle and his mother was just threatened. And I rem but I remember people being like, that's not so, he was so angry. And you know, at the time, like I didn't make any connection to the golden age, but I, I don't know. I see shades of the golden age Superman, not in every respect, but in certain respects in, in the Snyder movie, I think most notably the, the interrogation scene where, you know, Superman surrenders himself 
and he's in the, the interrogation room with Lois, right? And he's allowed himself to be handcuffed. And then at a certain moment, this guy just gets up and he's as calm and collected as can be, but purposeful. And he's not going to sit for this any longer. And he so easily breaks the handcuffs and he goes up to, you know, to General Swanwick and he's like, um, you know, you fear me because you can't control me. You, you can't and you never will. And it's so matter of fact and it's so direct. And um, in the Morrison run in particular, you know, Superman is captured by Luther and the government early on. And I feel like there was there were some similarities in there, too, just in Superman's response to them. So. Uh, so, again, like I'm seeing echoes, some shades of uh, of the Golden Age Superman in the Snyder stuff as well. Yeah, I, I think that's that's an excellent point. I think that in the Snyder movies, um, Superman is not immediately trusted by the powers that are already in charge. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely shades of that there where it's like, listen, if, uh, if I have to fight you guys too to do the right thing, I absolutely will. So, yeah, who, who knows? Maybe, you know, in a Man of Steel 2 or, or in a different direction or, you know, a movie where he didn't uh, murder a war criminal, he uh, could have possibly been engaged in that in a little bit more but uh, i guess we'll never know look you don't think golden age superman would snap a neck if he didn't have another choice come on he totally I, would I, no i do i absolutely i absolutely do think that that uh golden age superman has bodies my, my problem with that not to refight this battle for the hundredth yeah. time is that zod comes to earth in the phantom zone Put him back in the Phantom Zone. <laughs> like, that is what Golden Age Superman did a hundred times. That's what Jor-El did. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you clearly want him to murder someone because it's never been done on screen before. Just put him back in the Phantom Zone. It was the heat of the moment. There was no time. Anyway. All right, all right. You know more about this than I do. I only saw it the one time. <laughs> I have I have Mark Wade's reaction. Mark Wade supposedly was screaming at the screen, no, don't do it at that moment. That was my reaction. Reaction. I, I don't remember if I left the theater. I left the theater when Batman shoots the guy in the face in Dawn of Justice. You left the theater? Oh, I got up and I left. Yeah, I, oh, wow. I, watching Batman shoot. I, I even if it was a parademon in the face, I, I couldn't do it. I was overwhelmed. I, I went mm-hmm. out to the lobby and our, our friend Mark Hammond happened to be uh, there selling comics and stuff, and I talked to him for about twenty minutes, and then I went back in. Oh, wow. I did not know that. All right, uh, but as far as the Golden Age Superman having bodies in Action Two. Right. So and also, too, in these early issues, again, he's this social crusader. He's fighting for the oppressed. Um, there's also a very strong anti-war sentiment. And this idea that that Siegel was was very clear about that, you know, war was driven by the the, the greed of corrupt men. And so, uh, you know, in the in the second issue, right, like Superman takes this uh, weapons manufacturer and, and lobbyist to this war and like forces him to enlist so that he could experience what war is like from a firsthand perspective, which was fascinating. Again, like dispensing his own brand of justice. But elsewhere in that story, uh, you know, as Superman's flying around, like he sees a soldier torturing, uh, you know, uh, in the enemy and he grabs this guy and throws him. Now, look, we don't see the outcome it would be shocking to me if that guy survived. I mean, like, oh, that guy's dead. Oh, without a doubt, hurled him. Yeah, you know. So there was that happening. But again, big picture. uh, And I know we've both been saying it, but I, I really think it is such a powerful aspect of of Golden Age Superman that, you know, the the law, and we look, we see this. 
the law and what's right, they're not always the same thing. And this was a character who, uh, who, who was there to fight for what was right, even if that meant going against what was technically the law. And uh, again, it was just, it was really interesting to, to see that, to experience that in these stories. Yeah, I, I love that story because Superman is just like, I am stopping this war. And normally in a story like that, you'd think he'd be on the battlefield trying to prevent people from killing each other. That doesn't even occur to him because as far as he's concerned, everyone who's fighting this is his brother. He goes right for the top. He goes right for the people who are benefiting from it. It's such a smart, simple story. Again, it's, it's astounding to me. It's like, this is in his second appearance. He's fighting munitions manufacturers and the leaders of opposing army in a, in another country. And this is like before we're even in world war two. And this is a straight up War is bad. There's no reason you should be doing this. And the story ends by him basically saying, you're, you are the same people. You have the same stuff in common. There's no reason to be having this war. And if you don't settle it now, I'm going to settle it. And if I settle it, none of you are getting out of this in a way that's going to benefit you. So it's just, it's amazing. It's, it's such a great story, but you, you have to remind yourself, this is Superman. This is the guy with crypto and, and with all this other stuff. Like One became the other in a, in a very natural uh, uh, evolution over decades. Yeah, and you know, in, in the stories that we read and the stories that are collected in that 40s trade paperback, you know, you, you definitely do see the shift and you and it... <sighs> You know, you it makes sense, right? As America is entering World War II, um, that this anti-war sentiment, this idea that you know, uh, you know, war is just driven by by greed and and all of that, doesn't really work when you have you know uh, all of you know our soldiers going over there, and so you definitely saw this huge shift to propaganda, essentially. But what was so fascinating was I don't know if this was in the trade you have or if you saw this. But there were newspapers, it was actually in the newspaper strip, that they told a story that accounted for why Clark wasn't in the war. Have you come across that? I've read it before. I didn't read it. I didn't read it for this discussion. It was very clever, though, where, you know, Clark, Clark, not Superman, Clark is at the front of the line to enlist, right? Which I thought was interesting because it's like even meek, mild, cowardly Clark Kent, right, so supports our soldiers and wants to be there that he's going to sign up and... He's very confident because of his physique that he'll that he'll be chosen. Um, but he gets distracted during the vision test, thinking about all the things he's going to do to help win the war, that he inadvertently uses his x-ray vision and he reads the chart from the room next to his, not, not his own, and as a result fails. But it was, I mean, it was humorous, but also I think a clever way, because right, they obviously weren't going to send Clark to the war. So it was a clever way to at least account for that and to not undermine the character even further by making it that, you know, he, he didn't want to. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I get that the world in 1938 or 39, when we're talking about him dealing with the munitions guy, is a very different world from when the U.S. is actively engaged in World War II. And again, I mean, I don't know if we've said this before, Jerry Siegel is a Jewish American, and he is the son of immigrants. So I can't imagine what was going through his head, and I'm sure he wanted to write stories where Superman ends the war, but unfortunately that doesn't lend itself to recurring stories. And at that point, he was doing very well 
um, for himself and for Joe. So yeah, he had to come up with a way around it and he did that. But um, yeah, there's, you know, there's the story in Look Magazine where he does confront Hitler, which I thought was a nice uh, consolation prize. Yeah, and I mean, I think like the Look Magazine. It's a two-page story where he rounds up Hitler and Stalin, and he brings them to the you know the you know the world uh, tribunal, and that's it. Um, and I think yeah, there is definitely some wish fulfillment there. I mean, it. I, I get why they, like you said, that you know having Superman and the war in continuity like doesn't lend itself to ongoing storylines, but also, you know, I don't know if it would have been disrespectful or would have undermined like the sacrifices that were being made and and you know so many of the soldiers followed the adventures of superman and the character was an inspiration so i I think ultimately it it makes sense like i get why they went the route that they did where superman is a champion of the soldiers but he defers the fighting of the actual war to them and his is a battle fought you know for the most part you know in america fighting saboteurs and and you know nazi sympathizers and, and you know and stuff like that and we get a number of stories um, in that vein, I, one of the stories that was on the CBR list, I believe, is uh, Lois is on a on a boat. Yeah, it was in, it was on that list. I think it was Action sixty two, uh, where she's on a boat and they're captured by Nazis and and Superman rescues them. So you know you got you got stories more in that vein. Yeah, it's not like they ignored it. It's no, not like they said, well, this conflict isn't happening. It's just they had to deal with it in different ways because you know having Clark actually in the battle wasn't what they were looking to tell. Um, Also, a lot of other comics were doing that. I mean, you know, Captain America, if nothing else, was literally like, I am enlisted, you know, serviceman Steve Rogers, and I'm going to be fighting this battle, so... Yeah. And then we... So, you know, again, it's it's at this point where we do start to get these... we do get this shift, right, where he now becomes, Superman now becomes more a a symbol of, of the status quo and, or of the establishment. And is, you know, we get a more gentle and benign Superman. He's not quite the, uh, you know, the, the, the bat out of hell that he is in, in the early stories. And like the, one of the stories that's collected in, in the 40s trade is uh, Superman visits uh, soldiers training right at their base and he participates in uh, in drills and maneuvers and he's just you know throughout the story he's just so in awe of our soldiers and everything they can do and you know uh, again i mean it, it makes sense but yeah it def the stories i guess from around that point forward you know r- lost the teeth i think they really lost uh, you know a bit of that that uh, that electricity and energy that they had in in the beginning did you find that as well yeah, I I did, and and I mean it's unfortunate because you, I don't really think you could tell stories during that period of time where uh, the 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 hero of of what is what is supposed to be a kid story is attacking, you know the the established order, the order that is fighting the Axis powers and and uh, the war in the Pacific and all these other things like it. I think would have been perceived as unpatriotic, and certainly that's not what they were doing. I mean. You know, Superman couldn't have foreseen World War II, but once it was going on, like clearly they were like, "Well, wait a second, we have to, uh, you know, we have to um, make sure that we pivot, if you will." But also, the other thing that was going on around that time is, by the time World War II is is in high speed, Superman's got a bit of a rogues gallery. You know, I mean, he uh, he's no longer limited, if you will, to just fighting the um, uh, 
the real world menaces that Jerry Siegel was reading about in the newspaper or seeing in his own life, you know, he he had recurring, very colorful, very fanciful characters that was allowing Superman to become more fantastic uh, and really, again, differentiate himself in other ways because, you know, especially at that time, he probably had one of the richest rogues gallery. I mean, Luther alone, obviously, was was very good both his both his iterations back then. But uh, you know, I, I mentioned before about how much I love that Mixius Pitleg story. But it's like you know, Toy Man pranks through everyone else. It's like that's what that's what Jerry and Joe brought to the table. So it, it really helped differentiate it. Once it's like, well, you can't fight the police anymore. It's like, oh, okay, great. I'm going to fight supervillains for a while, and you know, we'll make sure that they don't do anything that would allow the access to get the upper hand. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that that certainly tracks. And, you know, especially, you know, unlike other wars and other wars in more recent history where, you know, there's been more of a question about whether we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, you look at World War II and there was very clearly like the good guys and the bad guys. And it's like, yeah, if, if America is entering this war and, and is emerging from this war as the world leader, it's like for Superman to still sort of be bumping up against that. Yeah, I don't know that that would have really played or resonated. So, you know, again, I think it makes sense and we can account for why that happened. And yeah, to your point, I mean, we were a few years in at that point as well. So it's like the the mythology is, is evolving a bit. I mean, not to the extent that it would in the Silver Age where we have all these elements that are added, but... Well, the Silver Age, <clears throat> you know, there, there's something complementary there too. You know, you mentioned before the comics code. Once the comics code is fully up to speed during the Silver Age, he can't fight any of these elements. Right. You know, it's it's very specific about that. Uh, the code's not around anymore, but it's like, yeah, I don't think you could fight gangsters. You couldn't fight the police, obviously. And that was absolutely a no-no. So it was one of these things, too, where it was like, well, we're going to publish Superman and Action Comics and Superboy every month so you writers and you artists are going to need to come up with big threats because you know we're, we're our, our hands are tied we can't do what we used to do and we defeated the nazis so you know we have to tell very interesting stories that's one of the reasons the silver age is the silver age it's it's different but it's no less successful when it comes to ideas i mean they just rapidly expand the world because they have to because they have new artistic constraints and yeah i mean you you can see how the character we're talking about from 1938-1939 really does evolve into the version that's going to fight brainiac and discovery as a cousin and get again get a dog and i love the dog but you know it's all those that that stuff that you really would have difficulty reconciling with, again, the version from Action 2 that just stops a war by pulling two generals at a table like he's Doctor Who and just being like, deal with this now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I, I think that's spot on. And But yeah, in those early stories, I mean, there's definitely, uh, you know, a lot to do with uh you know urban development and infrastructure and like one of the one of the stories it's not ultra humanite's first appearance but going back to you know the growing rogues gallery so like ultra humanite was kind of plagued him for a run of issues i believe yeah. uh, the one that was collected in uh in the trade was uh, action 14 which i think was his second appearance but it starts with uh, you know superman investigating a, a subway collapse uh something like that and he tracks down the guys who are responsible and he's following them in a car and all of a sudden the car becomes invisible. And it was, it took me out of it for a second because again, the first few stories that I had been reading, again, it's the wife beater, it's the war, it's yeah. uh, the broken dam, the dam that breaks. I think that's Superman 
three, I want to say, something like that. It was an early yeah. issue of Superman uh, where Lois is investigating a story, a dam breaks, he has to rescue her. So all of a sudden we had like a somewhat fantastical development here with the invisible car and it leads to the, the ultra humanite. Uh, so yeah, like it was, it was interesting even just to see that. But again, like starting from that perspective of like, uh, again, the, and then there was another story with the subway as well, where there were shoddy materials that were used. And it turned out that the head of the subway <laughs> department was corrupt. You know, there was like a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. I, I love the ultra humanite. So for anyone who doesn't know, the ultra humanite is basic. He's basically the first supervillain, really. I mean, if you want to frame it that way. So he was a, a bald, brilliant, amoral, mad scientist who was in a wheelchair and whose form was crippled. But like later versions of Luthor and of Dr. Savannah who fought Shazam, he could create any scientific wonder the story called for. Uh, it, it, he could make your car invisible. He could build whatever was needed. Uh, but he was the first, and he shows up, and he plagues Superman. And the, the dichotomy is very simple and very elegant, which is the ultra-humanite is he can't do any of the amazing things that Superman can do. He has no physical resources. His body has, has betrayed him for whatever reason, and Superman can do all these amazing things. So the ultra-humanite is using his mind, and his mind is unlimited. And it's just this very basic, very iconic struggle that we will see mirrored you know, for the next couple of decades with, with Luthor, obviously a very similar but but separate villain. And, and it's so raw because to your point, you don't expect the science fiction setting, uh, but it once it arrives, it kind of makes sense because it's like, oh yeah, there's only so many natural disasters and shoddy workmanship and, and gangsters that Superman can fight before he has to deal with something bigger and what I like about that, too, is it kind of explains why Superman slowly becomes more powerful, because his enemies are getting stronger. You know, the world around him, the world that he operates in, is getting weirder and stranger and more complicated, which helps explain why Superman, who starts off really just as a strong man, gets more abilities and, and more allies and more everything else. It's like his, his threats help him grow as a, as a character in a franchise yeah that makes that makes total sense and you know kind of on that note with his power level you know early on and i, I want to tie this to the george reeves show because the this first season of that show is very much kind of cut from the the golden age cloth in terms of the character he is much more uh quick-tempered and direct and he engages in fisticuffs with the the gangsters and thugs he's fighting just as in, in the early comics and then in the tv show it gets softened considerably in the subsequent seasons as it moved deeper into the 50s and you know at most he would karate chop uh one of the bad guys and even in the later episodes you would barely get that it was enough that he just showed up and he would grab them and that would be it but in the early season in the in the earliest episodes i mean he's fighting like he's fist fighting with with these people so interesting to see that shift. But on the note of, of the powers, uh, I, I want to make sure that we do talk a little bit more about the Fleischer cartoon. There too, that's something that I had seen, probably not all, I mean, there were 17, right? There were, I it was nine that were done uh, by the Fleischer studio directly, right? And then the subsequent eight by the Fleischer studio successor, famous studios, after the Fleischer brothers had their falling out. I think that was the, the basic history of it. Uh, but these were theatrical shorts of, you know, on just under 10 minutes in length. And again, I, I had seen probably a good chunk of them before. And 
admire them. I admire, I think my, my impression all these years was like, wow, the animation was really impressive for the time. And that's still what I feel about it, but I, I've really come to appreciate them uh, even more now. I rewatched uh, maybe about a handful of them uh, before our conversation here. But um, the, I mean, they are way ahead of their time, but just the the fluidity of the motion in these cartoons, I mean, it's it's really astounding. I mean, you compare it to, you know, uh, cartoons from this, the 60s, and it's like, this blows them out of the water. And you sent me a YouTube video, which was actually was really interesting, where uh, the, 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 the YouTube video creator, uh, you know, was kind of explaining why these were so sophisticated and, and, you know, how they continue to stand apart from other animation. Uh, the rotoscoping uh, animation technique that the Fleischers developed and the budget as well. I mean, I, so Paramount, right, came to them wanting to do a Superman cartoon and the Fleischers, according to the articles I read, didn't want to do it. And so they quoted like this crazy high episode fee, <laughs> assuming that they would be denied. And instead they were like, okay. <laughs> and so, they, yeah. so there was a ton of money that went into these. But I mean, they are just gorgeous and they they really for the most part they stand the test of time and you know i think one of the reasons i never really fully dived into them there's not there's not much i mean there's no character development there's very little dialogue they're, they're almost entirely action driven but these i now i can appreciate that more and i know going in that it's like yeah no i'm not there to see you know uh you know Clark wrestling with his role in the world it's like I'm going to see yeah. him fight a dinosaur and it's going to be rendered <laughs> you know it's going to be rendered beautifully and and you know we're going to see the action conveyed in a way that you know is, is so impressive so I I really am a fan of those and I know you you've been a fan of those for a long time right yeah no I I same with you as a as a kid I was like oh those are important right and they were some of the inspiration for Bruce Tim and Paul Dini doing the kind of the animated series too. But yeah, it wasn't until I actually sat down and watched them and really focused on them and, and began to appreciate the context that they were created in that I realized how revolutionary they were. And yeah, to, to your point, there, there's no character development here. There's very little dialogue. Um, every episode can be watched pretty much, you know, divorced from the others. Uh, there's Perry, there's Lois, there's Superman, there's the villain of the week, and there's just going to be, you know, this this brutal physicality. Um, you know, he fights robots, he fights mad scientists that shoot energy beams. You know, he, he just this, like, they set up a problem that Superman is going to fix with how strong and determined and uh, passionate he is about it. And then, you know, Lois being in danger makes it personal and, and, and ups the stakes. But yeah, for, for what they are, you know, they're very good at that simple premise. I mean, to your point, the, the way it's animated and everything else, I mean, these look great today in 2021. Never mind, I can't imagine what they would look like in the 30s. Um, but the other thing that I really like about them is they the the way they show Superman's abilities and his powers. He it's not that he gets shot at or that something hits him and he just stands there and he waits until it's his turn and then he effortlessly dispatches with them. Like he he struggles, you know, and he is animated like falling down, getting back up, pushing through things. There's one frame in the video you're talking about where you actually see him like kick off a building to kind mm -hmm. of get his flight. You know, this is not a Superman who can kind of hover off the ground, almost like a Christ-like figure. Like this is the one who's got to like crouch down and, and jump and leap. And, and you see the arcs his flight takes. 
they're just it's just animated beautifully well they're, nothing as far as i can tell is reused or, or anything like that like they got in and they did 17 amazing episodes and then they they dropped the mic <laughs> so i i think they held it very well i watched a handful of, of my favorite ones before this discussion and i i was riveted i mean i watch a lot of crap in these things i think they hold up very well they do. I mean, for anyone who hasn't watched them or hasn't watched them in a while, I, I really do recommend them there. And exactly to your point about like really like they really put him through his paces and you really see him work. Um, the, the I think it's I want to say it's the third one, but the runaway train uh, with the, you know, with the money that's going to the, the mint. And, you know, it's like there's this whole sequence where he's pulling this run this or the piece of the train uh that's falling like he's pulling it while he's being shot at and he loses the train at one point and he's got to go and grab it and he like literally pulls it into the station and it's like man like again this guy was working uh but yeah it's uh yeah they're so good i mean i like i said i, I watched about a handful I, I i i do plan to watch the rest of them and you definitely do see you know in the art style and and again i think in the way that a lot of the action is conveyed you do see the influence on the the tim the bruce tim cartoons and the superman animated series in particular i'm sure we talked about this before i don't remember but have you seen bruce tim's original fleischer inspired designs for superman the animated series i think so but not enough that i uh okay. call them while we're talking yeah, no, that's that's quite all right. For anyone who wants to see, I mean, you can probably search for them. They're also on the Digging for Kryptonite Instagram page. I, this was like one of my first posts, and I'll repost it uh, when, when this episode comes out. But uh, yeah, initially Tim was planning to uh, to to really uh, evoke the the aesthetic of the Fleischer cartoons. I mean, it wasn't exactly the designs, but it it looked much closer to that than what we ended up with. And I don't, you know, it's funny. I feel like especially to appeal to an audience of kids in the nineties, like they probably went the right way. Yeah. But part of me is like, damn, like I would have been so cool even just to see an episode in that yeah. style. Uh, Cause yeah, it was like a, little, a bit of a blend of, you know, a more modern style with the Fleischer. Uh, they, it was cool. It was cool to see. So anyone who wants to check that out again, go to the, the digging for kryptonite Instagram or just search for it. Um, it is out there. Uh, really interesting. But yeah, that was the original intention for that was to really, um, you know, kind of bring back that style, which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, if if I'm remembering correctly, the Superman the Animated Series from the late 90s is very similar to what we're talking about. Like, Superman was much uh, less powerful than yep. he was in the comics of the time. You know, he couldn't breathe underwater. He couldn't breathe in space. He had to get a lot of help from his friends and allies. Like, he got put through his paces far more, which I remember a lot of us, myself included, were confused about because in the comics at this time, he was very very strong uh he was very powerful and obviously in the christopher reeves movies or reeve reeves movies he'd turned back time and done all this other stuff so it was a bit of an adjustment and yeah and i think if they had gone full fleischer people might have been like why are you calling this character superman this is not superman yeah and you know the 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 fleischer cartoon the george reeves show superman the animated series i mean they all follow that template of you know the core group at the planet you know, investigating stories. And then of course, Superman is needed. And again, it is not this godlike Superman. It is a much more down to earth character. The other thing that they all do that uh, is, is always funny is, is the sort of the wink to the audience. 
right? Where, you know, Lois will make some crack about Clark, like, oh, like, you know, you, you know, I guess you were too nervous to come today. You know, you missed Superman. And he was, you know, and he always has some comeback or it's like, how did you get here so fast, Clark? I flew. And, you know, that, that look to the camera and that wink. And there, I, you know, there was a charm to that. Cause I, and I, I feel like, especially for, and they did that in the animated series, right? I'm not, I feel like there were, inst- not all the time, but I feel like there were some instances of that. Yeah, yeah, because he and Lois are definitely not together. So there's a bit of that, like, oh yeah, you know, I I, I get around, I, I get along, but um, yeah, I don't think the the Clark in that show had a lot to do. He spent a lot of time yeah. in his costume, though. Martha and, and John were there, which were nice. right. Um, but but again, just that idea of uh, you know, sort of that breaking the fourth wall and that like wink to the audience, it's effective because, and especially for kids, but even for adults, it's like it it pulls you in, like you you're in on it with with Superman, with Clark. Uh, so, you know, there, there is something to that. Uh, going back to, but anyway, so the Fleischer stuff, phenomenal. And, you know, again, like I was really just thinking about like what it must have been like to be a kid or an adult, um, you know, in the thirties, in the movie theater, seeing, you know, seeing those, uh, you know, those eight or nine minute shorts before a movie and how, as much as you had the comics, which is visual, right, and you had the radio show, which brings it to life in a different way, you know, to see those cartoons, to see the character animate, like literally and figuratively animated, uh, yeah, I feel like that just helped cement, you know, who, who this character is and, and what he can do. And again, just like we were saying before about this idea of flight, which ends up becoming an indelible part of his set of powers, uh, so yeah, the Fleischer cartoons, uh, I, I've come to appreciate their place in the canon uh, even more so uh, now taking a look at, at these Golden Age stories. Um, jumping back to to the comics, there's one story that I, I only mentioned, just uh, I alluded to it briefly, but um, there's a story where there's a corrupt superintendent of an orphanage and this kid escapes and he passes out from hunger on the train tracks and Clark happens to be walking by and is able to save him as Superman. And, you know, we find out that this superintendent is, uh, you know, not, not feeding the kids and is making them work and beats them. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrendous. And again, it's the sort of story I would not have expected to see in a, in a comic. But like you were saying before, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's like the gloves were off in the 30s. It wasn't what we would get, in, you know, later in the you know 40s and 50s and, and later. Um. And so Lois and Clark investigate. And there's also a fun bit where there's a rivalry with reporters at another paper and they follow them to the orphanage and and all that stuff. And of course, ultimately they, you know, they get this corrupt superintendent uh, who is, who sets fire to the orphanage. I mean, this guy is like, uh, you know, completely heartless. But again, another interesting, you know, uh, example of, again, that social crusader and a very real world problem and i'm sure there were a lot of kids whether they were in an orphanage or just they were in a bad home environment who saw a story like that where it's like superman rescues them and you know i'm, I'm sure that that really struck a chord uh, with a lot as i was reading that story though this was in the superman title so at that point we had it had now been established that he was adopted by the kents but i couldn't help but think if we had gotten that story a year earlier you know the idea of dealing with a corrupt orphanage from a Superman who grew up in an orphanage, there might've been something there. Uh, but again, that wasn't the, that wasn't the, the specific, uh, you know, incarnation that we were dealing with. Yeah. But that, I mean, what you're saying is, is so perfect. Cause it's, it's Superman is fighting people who 
are in positions of power where they should be using that to help people. I mean, this guy runs an orphanage, and clearly Jerry Siegel had Clark Kent be raised in an orphanage at some point in the near past. So the idea that Jerry would go back, or, or again, whoever wrote it, I'm just assuming it's Jerry, but it's like this person was charged with protecting children, and one of them at one point was Clark, and now he's here, and you're misusing your ability, and now you've fallen in his crosshairs. Like, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to prevent Superman from stopping you. And it's so purposeful, and it's it's almost personal, because it's like, I can't believe you're doing this. And, and these types of stories, you know, this theme comes up again and again and again, where it's it's not just external threats. It's not just cigar-chewing gangsters or rogue aliens or something like that. It is the villain of this story is the guy who runs the orphanage. <laughs> like, it's it's a really brutal story, but it also makes it much more compelling because, yeah, this kid is like, hey, thank you very much for the meal and making sure I didn't die, but I do not want to go back to that place that I'm supposed to be safe. And, yeah, to your point, I can't imagine how many people reading this who kind of related to both the kid and to Clark ultimately making sure that everyone was safe. It's just, it probably hit home. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you know, and there are obviously many more examples, but, you know, when we talk about those, those early stories and, and this crusader for the oppressed, I mean, that's, you know, that's what we're talking about. Uh, we've been going for over an hour and a half. So I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to keep you or our audience too long, but <laughs> some of the, so of course, as we move deeper into the 40s, right? Again, as we said before, we do get this shift, you know, very, you know, pro-America, very patriotic, and the stories do get sillier in in a lot of respects. Um, the 40s trade and in the introductory material, it talks about how, especially for soldiers who were coming back from the war, I guess the idea was this would help them, you know, they were going through this this difficult transition, like returning to, you know, the, the domestic life, and so the idea that we would have Superman dealing with more of these, you know, sillier domestic situations would help them as well, which I thought was interesting. One of the stories, and I forget the exact uh, year, but man, the story stood out. It's where Lois is so lovesick over Superman. I can't, that's, that he, I, he takes her to a therapist who prescribes that she transfer her feelings of love from Superman, who's unattainable, to a normal man. And they settle on Clark. Because she goes through some of the other people. Like, Perry's married. There's someone else she mentioned at the planet who's you know, not, not a viable option and lands on Clark. But she says, like, I don't know if I feel that way. And the therapist says, force yourself. And then in the next panel, he says, that'll be $10, please. And I... <clears throat> You're an accountant. I know you'll appreciate this. I was like, well, all right. So that's in the 40s. I said, what would that be today? It's about like $200 for, for that advice, which I guess is not, it's not so, I thought it was going to be a lot higher, but I guess it's not so crazy for a therapy session, but it's, that's a steep price to pay for that advice, I think. Um, and so she, you know, she, she goes about, uh, you know, throwing herself at Clark who, you know, you would think this is what he's always wanted. He's always asking her out on dates, but he's like, this is getting in the way of me being Superman. He's like, I got to get rid of her. <laughs> He's caught completely off guard. He doesn't know what to do with it. And, and I love it. This is what I was saying before. Like this dynamic arrives fully formed. And when you play with one of the sides, it gives you a great story where Clark is suddenly like, wait, you, you are interested in me. Oh, well, I don't know what to, I don't know what to do with this. It's just, it's, it's great. It's just one of those things where I don't know if you could get away with a story like that only a few years later. 
Yeah, it was, uh, again, I'm glad that was included. It was it was very, very funny. I was telling my wife about that after. She was like, what? I was like, yeah. <laughs> so that was, you know, there was that one. Like I said, I didn't have access to the first Mixius Pitalik appearance, but there is an early appearance of his that is collected that I read where he, quote unquote, teams up with uh, Lois's niece, Susie, who's prone yeah. to telling tall tales. And... Um, I mean, I don't. Have, do you want to? Do you want to give the 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 background on this one? Because I've done a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a story about this little kid and this imp from the fifth dimension, and uh, you know, the way the imp is defeated is his name has to be said backwards by himself. So Clark always has to outthink him because uh, he'll never be stronger or faster than him. He can manipulate reality. At one point in the story, he Superman teams up with the little girl to convince the imp that, hey, uh, part of your home dimension from uh, your home planet from the fifth dimension is on the outskirts of the city. We should go there together. And you see Superman like very quickly building the most like ridiculous uh, playground-esque place. And it's supposed to be uh, the imp's home planet and it's just this completely ridiculous story where superman's like i can't punch you so i'm gonna have to outthink you and if it means teaming up with this little girl well then so be it that's how we're gonna deal with it today but the kicker of this right is like he built like superman builds in a, his best approximation of the fifth dimension and and then he destroys it to make mixie think that mixie is losing his mind and then he's like, all right, well, like you must like your sight must. Be, oh, that's what it was. It's like you must be like losing your eyesight. Yep. And so like he like tricks Mixie into reading all of these faraway signs. And on one of them is written his name backwards. And that's how yeah. he's able to, you know, to trick him into into going back. But this uh, super construction that, that Superman performs calls to mind another another of these later stories. And that that trade also has the first appearance of Toy Man. Uh, so, uh, so again, we're not dealing with the heavy hitters in the rogues gallery, except Luther, right? We, we talked about earlier, but, um, who's but not are, even Lex. I mean, yeah. Really, he's, yeah, he's, yeah. Um, but so the story I'm talking about featured a character that honestly, I was not familiar with before this project, uh, Jay Wilbur Wolfingham, the con man. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Which I guess he had made a number of appearances. Again, I was not familiar with him, but in this story, it's I think Journey to Ruin, and the con is uh, he promises all these wealthy people if there's four of them and if they each pay him a quarter of a million dollars, he will put them in suspended animation, invest their money so it will grow, and then they'll wake up in the future. And Superman, you know, overhears this so he knows what's going on, and so to teach them all a lesson. <laughs> He also knocks out the con man and he builds a future city or neighborhood at least and hires actors like he goes to a local theater and he hires all these actors. Um, but to teach them a lesson, the the whole thrust of this this new world that he's built for them is that everyone had the same idea they did. To, to like, you know, put themselves in suspended animation, not deal with the problems of today, not put in the work today, put it off until tomorrow. And as a result, yeah, their money has grown, but money's worthless. There's nothing to buy anymore. No one's making things. No one's inventing things. And they're all like, oh no, what have we done? And so in order to like complete the, this illusion, I don't like he destroys the city. Meanwhile, it's like people could have lived there. <laughs> it's like, 
crazy to me. But was so again, it was interesting to to meet this con man character who was you know uh, somewhat a member of the rogues gallery. That might be you know uh, generous, but it was a character. But also, I've always I've always been kind of hard on the christopher reeve movie series the and the the version of lex in particular with his real estate schemes it's like always real estate with this guy but i don't know now i read some of these stories it's like superman's tearing down neighborhoods he's building them i'm like i don't know maybe they're maybe this is kind of like a common thread here uh yeah I, why not right i mean real estate developers are always uh you know, good, uh, good villains and, and basis is for Lex and some continuity. So yeah, it, it makes sense. But yeah, Superman just teaching people lessons in the most harsh, brutal way possible or is always great because it's, it, it's almost like he takes it so personally, you know, it's like to, to what you said, it's like, he, he's like, how dare you not want to work and not want to invent and not want to be novel and just, you know, just sit down and watch other people do it. It's like, he, he takes that in a personal offense and that feels like a very honest sentiment of the time where it's like, no, we're all working. We're all in this together. There's so much nonsense going on. It's like, how dare you sit back and think you're going to be exempt from this? It's like, if we all work together, we might actually accomplish something here. So yeah, the things that get Superman angry and personally invested enough to build these fake worlds. It's like, again, they're coming from a very honest and real place. It's not the external threat. It's not something that, um, you know, is is uh, is outside the realm of what the reader might go through. Here, it makes sense. It's like, oh, I just want to invest and live off of it. You know, I just want to have money and not have to do anything. And it's like, I imagine the people reading these strips were like, yeah, forget those people. Yeah, Superman, teach them a lesson. Yeah, definitely do what I can't do against people who've got, you know, all this uh, privilege and no ambition. Yeah. The the I you know again we could I know we could we could probably do another hour but the the last thing the last story that I just want to mention is um the Superman story I believe it's called where um Perry assigns all of his reporters and a photographer it's not Jimmy Olsen but it's uh you know Joey Crane is that the character's name I want to say I'm something sure, like that yeah. to spend a day with Superman and whoever gets comes up with the best story wins and. You know, Superman begins his day with his exercise, like he's you know swims across the Atlantic and he's doing all this stuff, um, and then he goes about his superheroics and it's um, you know rescuing miners and again building a new neighborhood for uh, people who are going to be displaced and dealing with an unscrupulous uh, landlord, a property developer. Uh, giving, uh, you know, basically bringing in snow for, uh, like children's Olympics, stuff like that. And the photographer keeps missing all of these events because, uh, Clark didn't show up for this, for this day. And the photographer was trying to find out if Clark was okay. And he ends up being late and he misses everything. But the, the, the very nice postscript to this episode, it was a very heartwarming story. You know, at the end, the photographer wins because he, shows up after and he takes these photos of everyone whose lives have been changed by Superman. So it's not so much the feat of the superheroics that's the story, it's what he is doing for people and the effect that it has. And I really did think, look, it didn't have the teeth and the punch of <laughs> of the earlier stories, but there was something very, very poignant about that. I like that one a lot. Yeah, that's great. And and to your point, I think that comes across with all these stories. It's like Clark is not doing this for personal gain. He's doing this because he, he does want to help people and, and he feels like he has this great power so he can do a little bit more than most and he can he can 
punch out the bigger guys because they're not going to be able to hurt him. So, yeah, I think all the best stories are about how he makes other people's lives better. And and I think that carries over after the golden age is done because I think that is a, a, a fundamental aspect of Superman. It's like he's doing this for other people. It's why you, last time you and I spoke, we said there's not a lot of good last Superman stories. And I think I said something along the lines of, well, yeah, why why would he want to stop doing this? He likes what he does. He, you know, he, he has a wife and he has a family and he has friends, but he also he likes helping people. And obviously people are always going to need help because not everyone is like him. So yeah, I, I love seeing that that is there from, from early on. Like Clark doesn't need to be taught that helping people is the right thing to do by anyone. I mean, the Kens aren't even there to begin with. It's there. And, and I think that comes across from the creators. I think that's very much how Jerry, Joe, and the others really were. But any, side note, is your is your the wire from your headset rustling up against anything by any chance? Because oh, it might be. I'm okay. going to hold it. <laughs> uh, the the listeners, uh, I'm sure, appreciate. Um, and <laughs> you know, as, as much as like we've skipped over the the origins because I've covered it previously. You know, it it wasn't until the 10 year anniversary uh, on Superman 53 that we got like a full full proper telling of the origin and. You know, unlike, you know, there was one panel in Superman 1 where, uh, you know, there's a mention of the parents you know, basically instilling values in him. We get that okay. fleshed out more in uh, in that origin telling where, um, you know, Pa on his deathbed is like, you know, you have to help people. You're a Superman. And, you know, yeah. so, you know, that all of that does get fleshed out more. But like I said before, I, I don't know, there is something really effective. And I again, I find myself surprised that I feel this way because I do like when we when we get the origin fleshed out but there is something effective about him just sort of like appearing and 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 being shrouded in that mystery and vanishing after he you know accomplishes his super heroics uh it, it it's a really cool take on the character um were there any other of the stories that we read that uh that you that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we do um yeah for, before we do that though the story you're talking about the 10 year anniversary where we see Superman's origin. So that was written by Bill Finger, who is the co-creator of Batman and Green Lantern and pretty much any other golden age character that we're still talking about. He was amazing and he was underrated in his time, Uh, but he did a fair amount of Superman stories and that was one he did. And that was reprinted in a variety of the different works that we did today. So you know, anyone out there, if you ever want to read a Golden Age story for any character and you can look up online if it was written by Bill Finger, it's probably going to be good. Again, everything you like about Batman probably came from him. He wrote this story. He kind of outlined the version of Superman's origin we're still talking about. And that is the, the tip of the iceberg about what this man gave to the industry. Um, but yeah, the story that I wanted to talk about that I had never read before this reread was uh, the first appearance of Superwoman, uh, where Lois Lane uh, imagines that she has powers. And I really enjoy that for a bunch of reasons. One, I love Lois. I think she's a great, great character. I think she's very interesting. And uh, I love how in action comics, the early ones, she is... uh, she is part of the story. She is not a damsel. She is not passive in any way. She stands up to the crooks. She stands up to the villains. She yells at Clark for having less of a spine. And again, I I don't know what to compare her to of the time, but I have to imagine that this was atypical of heroine, certainly when your name's not on the masthead. So 
I, I love that Lois was compelling right from the start. And this issue where she becomes Superwoman, she imagines that she is getting a blood transfusion from Superman. She gets all of his abilities. She puts on a costume uh, very similar to what Supergirl would wear later on, uh, except she also has pants, which I thought was great. And uh, she just she just goes out there. She starts doing things the way she imagined Superman would. And you know, at no point does she say like, "Hey, you got to stop doing this," or you know, "We're anything other than equals." It's just it's just great. She just wakes up, she gets great power, and she's like, "I want to help people too." And that was a story where I, I just found like, "Oh, you know, no wonder Lois is is unchanged from." Uh, how we know her today. Like she's always been this incredible force in his life. And, and that's another thing that comes from the creators. Uh, she was based on um, Jerry Siegel's eventual wife, Joanne Siegel. So again, like that passion that comes from a real place and it's very honest. And I, and I feel like it worked through uh, into the art. Well said. Yeah, that was, that was a standout story as well. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, you know, I know, I mean, I've, we talked about Lois a, a decent bit, but there's so much more to say. And I know we only touched on on Luther. I do plan uh, deep dives into those characters later on in this podcast series. So, you know, that's something that we'll, we'll continue to come back to. But uh, listen, I want to thank you for joining me for this. And I, I thank you for your enthusiasm for the Golden Age. It's funny because, so this is the first of a trilogy of episodes. So next, in two weeks, we'll have uh, Rich Roney back. We'll talk about... Uh, Silver Age, and then two weeks after that, I'll have a guest named Bernie, uh, and he and I are going to be talking about Bronze Age Superman. And uh, you know, it's funny because this is the the oldest time period, and out of the three people who are going to be talking pre-crisis Superman with me, you are the youngest, and you were you were so quick, you were so quick. To be like, I want to do Golden Age Superman, but you know, it's funny because I just before we sat down to record this, I posted a photo of that Golden Age Superman figure on social media, and. Like a lot of people commenting about like how much they like Golden Age Superman. I feel like it's something that isn't always discussed as much. I think Silver Age Superman really tends to steal the spotlight, you know, but but it's nice to know that there are Golden Age fans out there and maybe this episode will will make a couple more. That would be kind of cool because uh, it's definitely something that I think deserves to be read and appreciated. I think in the end, obviously the character had to evolve in order to endure, but at the same time, if we... If we didn't have that earliest version of Superman, I don't know if the character is still around today. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, there was something in that very early, very raw version of the character that connected with everyone. Because to go back to what you said before, he is an immediate super success and he gets all these adaptations and uh, uh, all this wealth and there is a reason for that and yeah that character has to evolve to endure as you said very well but there is something there on arrival and, and it connected with a great many number of people and and i know that for me of overcoming the the stereotypical superman is very boring thing it was going back to these and saying whoa, whoa wait, wait a second he wasn't always he wasn't always the way that I was introduced to him. He used to be this other thing, and this other thing was really interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like if people know about this stuff, they love it. The problem is that most don't, because it's not a version of the character that uh, DC seems all that interested in. The Grant Morrison run did not last that long, unfortunately. And again, that version of the character was actually written out of continuity completely and replaced with the version of the character that you and I had grown up with. And, and again, that's fine. I mean, if that's what they need to do to, to have the story. But I, I think that when you come to these early texts, and I mean, you're a perfect example, it's like there's something there for everyone. 
for sure. Uh, so listen, thank you again for being part of this. Thank you to our audience. Uh, make sure you come back in two weeks for our Silver Age discussion. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Greg Shegel, music by Basic Printer. Join the conversation by becoming part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network Facebook group. Follow Digging for Kryptonite on Instagram and Twitter and visit flatsquirrelproductions.com to explore more of my film and podcast projects.